I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. The jungle is coming up to the door. The birds are the calling. A heart to ignore. The heat of the morning has come to of my guest today on the program, Robert Forster. Let me tell you a little bit about Robert Forster. Well, okay, I can't really do that. I can't tell you a little bit about Robert Forster because there's so much to tell. I mean, devoting just five or six minutes to explaining who this guy is does not do him justice, but I'll do the very best I can. And in the process, I'll prove why I'm worth the millions that I make doing this. All right. Here's my attempt to tell you just a little bit about Robert Forster, okay? Let me actually start by reading you something that Robert Forster wrote. Taken from his book, The Ten Rules of Rock and Roll, here are Robert Forster's Ten Rules of Rock and Roll. Number 10. The three-piece band is the purest form of rock and roll expression. Number 9. Great bands don't have members making solo albums. Number 8. Every great artist hides behind their manager. Number seven, the guitarist who changes guitars on stage after every third number is showing you his guitar collection. Number six, no band does anything new on stage after the first 20 minutes. Number five, the band with the most tattoos has the worst songs. Number four, being a rock star is a a 24-hour-a-day job. Number three, Great bands tend to look alike. Number two, the second last song on every album is the weakest. And the number one rule of rock and roll, according to Robert Forster, never follow an artist who describes his or her work as dark. Those are all good rules to follow, and Forster knows what he's talking about. Along with pal Grant McLennan, the Brisbane-born singer-songwriter founded The Go-Betweens in 1977 at the age of 20. Over the course of their critically acclaimed career, the band released nine perfect albums, they toured all over the world, and they had their song Cattle and Cane, chosen by the APRA, as one of the top 30 greatest Australian songs of all time. Now look, the Go-Betweens were one of the most critically acclaimed bands, well, pretty much ever. And for good reason. 
There's even a long-running joke that uses a rather disastrous setup to make a point about just how much critics love this band. The joke is, if a fire broke out at a go-between show and burned the club to the ground, there'd be no music critics left. But it wasn't just the critics who loved the go-betweens. In 1987, I played their song right here on my high school radio show every single week. Why? Well, because my mom loved that song, and she always requested it. Now, I said the go-betweens were revered for good reason, and here's what I meant by that. Their sound fell somewhere between the Velvet Underground and Wire, and the juxtaposition of McLennan's bright pop hooks and Forrester's dark, brooding narratives provided one of the most satisfying counterpoints in music history. But looking back, the funny thing was this. McLennan's brightness belied the darkness of his compositions, while Forrester's brooding work belied his humor and his own brand of moody sunshine. What I'm trying to say is the go-betweens were a very complicated band. And complicated as they were, they were truly fabulous. In my opinion, they're one of the greatest of all time. And I'm certain that had McLennan not died in 2006, the go-betweens would undoubtedly have continued to make some of the most moving pop records you'd ever hear. If you know the band, you know I'm right. And if you've not heard them before, go buy everything after you listen to this podcast. Trust me, you're in for a treat that you'll keep with you for the rest of your life. And if you ever find yourself in Brisbane, do yourself a favor and take a drive on the go-between bridge and think of the majesty of the band's songbook as you coast over the river. That's right. They have a bridge named after them. Take that, Led Zeppelin. Forster has been putting out solo records since the 80s, and his new one, Inferno, is a subtle and stirring masterpiece. In fact, Stereo Ember's senior editor Dave Cantrell wrote of the album... Reflective even at its most buoyant, with the vice as surely versa as it's ever been, Inferno finds this artist, as he's always done with his writing partner and since, leaving us hanging in a balance, where the answers are as evident as the questions are, fatally, inscrutable, and much, if not nearly all of that, is down to the mixture of poise and distantly nagging doubt in these songs' delivery almost teasing in the way they embrace a firmly determined moral ambivalence. This is forceful, eloquent work. An author, a songwriter, a singer, and a true gentleman, Robert Forster was the greatest guy to chat with. Honest, open, funny, and thoughtful, he is the true embodiment of artistic grace and generosity of spirit. I told you, it's hard to tell you a little bit about Robert Forster, and I meant it. To put it in Whitmanic terms, he is large. He contains multitudes. You'll see. Here's my chat with the fabulous Robert Forster, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I wrote the song, um, which is the third song on the album, Inferno, Brisbane in Summer. I wrote that, and uh, it just—it was just a, you know, like a like a sketch, a, uh, a look at at um, 
Brisbane, in, you know, like the, the effects of climate change, basically, and how the summers are getting hotter here, and just suburban Brisbane tropical life. And um, I just like the word, you know, like I just wrote that song and it has it in the title. And I thought, you know, like um, it's just an, an unusual word for me and strong and a good potential album title. I like the idea that you had to be away from Brisbane to actually apprehend what it was you were thinking about to in terms of recording it. Yeah, I um but I walked into a heat wave there. Like um we went to Berlin and at the end of May and it was like the first ten ten, twelve days were thirty degrees plus. It was like I'd walked out of one hot summer into another really. Um but yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's where the songs were interpreted, you know, like in Berlin. That's true. What do you think geography can bring to composition? Um, I, I was thinking in terms, this is sort of a double-pronged question. I was thinking of that Tom Waits oh, yeah. line about, yeah, I never knew my hometown until I saw it from far away. Um, All right. But So what's, what's your take on, on that? that? Well, that's true. Um, especially if you um, were born in it and grew up in it, um, I, I, like, I'd go further. I, I really don't think you really, unless you're moving around a lot, um, if you were, you know, like if you're, you're born and, and raised in a town until you're about, well, I don't think you really see it until, especially, well, I guess it depends on the size of the town. I mean, I grew up in a town, Brisbane was around a million people. Um, there'd be a lot of, um, towns that size in the United States, but it was, I don't think you really know, get a start to get a fix on where you live until you're about 18, until you start driving around. I think, you know, like once you're at school and there's not time, you know, like you um, to really know where you are because, you, you know, like you're at school all the time and you're doing stuff that are very much, you know, in your suburb. Um, so I think it takes a while to get to know your town after that. And then when you leave, that almost sort of completes the... Um, you know, what sort of picture you, you have it. So I think that is 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 definitely true. I mean, you know, like Grant and I um left left Brisbane in in nineteen seventy nine when we were twenty uh, I was twenty two and he was twenty one. And and I think also, you know, like so we, we, we got a it, it puts you, you you we went to London, so it really puts your hometown into perspective immediately. But also it gives you, once you go away, you get a place of comparison. You know, like, I don't know where Tom Waits was from, but, you know, like if he then went to Chicago or then went to San Francisco or whatever, you know, just being in San Francisco makes you feel differently about your hometown, not only because you're away from it, but because you're in San Francisco and you're seeing something else, you know. Um, so that, that was definitely true of, of uh, myself. Do you think you have to leave your home to sort of properly understand it? I think it helps a great deal. Um, I think um, it, I really do think that we, like the first time I went away, like I was talking about that trip, I was away for six months and I really came back um, to the town and uh I, well, the town hadn't obviously changed, but I'd changed, and 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 I think it was also just seeing other places more, 
then seeing my hometown for the first time. Um, it was a combination of both. I think the being away part is big. I think being seeing other things and, you know, it's not like you just go away from your hometown for the first time for a while and you're in a bubble somewhere or, you know, like just living in a warehouse in the middle of nowhere. You know, like you're actually engaging in another city that immediately makes you do comparisons in your head. Um, so I think that plays a big part. It's funny because in American music, especially, you know, Springsteen, even just sort of the um, the American songbook, the early American songbook, is all about right. traveling and leaving and, and yeah. you know, leaving it all behind, um, yeah. which, which maybe, I don't know if it's an American notion or not, but when you ended up going to London, were you sort of like, I'm never leaving here. This is awesome. Or like, what, was your, what was your feeling? I know you were quite young. Um, um, I, you know, like, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, and, um, I think, um, I was just interested in that, that idea about people moving away. I think, I think, I think that's, that goes, that's a blues thing, you know, like an American or, you know, like a, and also it's, you know, like, uh, a folk thing, you know, like a lot of those, you don't have to think of Bob Dylan, um, and a lot of those, you know, early songs, you know, I'm going down the highway, I'm going here, I'm going there. Right. Um, but really, you know, like he was just sitting, <laughs> he was just sitting in New York, you know, like <laughs> writing all those songs. <laughs> he wasn't going anywhere. Um, but, um, I, th I think it can be just a, almost a form at times, you know, like a format, you know, like you want to tell some other story or you, you want to, um, or you have the urge to do it and just writing a song can be like enough in a way. Um, it's romantic to travel. Um, and so maybe, maybe artists, you know, although for blues, someone who's doing blues in the 1930s or 20s or something, there's nothing probably much romantic about that, or maybe just the idea of of going somewhere else is. Um, but um, no, when when I no, like I I I still enjoy it. You know, like I still enjoy. It's still something I like. I really like. I mean, I live in Brisbane, Australia, and and part of I couldn't live here all the time. Like part of it is having to travel and just. I need a break from it every, you know, um, you know, like when I can. Um, it's just, you know, it's a really good town. It's a good town to come back to, but I, I need to get out and see things. That's what I need to do. I need to see things and experience things and learn things and then come back to, to where I am here, you know, and then just sort of work them into songs or work them into words or work them just out of my own mind. I like the idea that you, that you're that you're in Brisbane. I like the idea that you returned there after all your travels. Yeah. You know, it's cool that you did yeah. that because um, you, you could have lived anywhere. What was the reason why you decided to sort of go back home and and settle there? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that was that was relatively straightforward. Was that um, at this stage, which was two thousand and one, when I moved back with my young family and my wife. Um, my the go-betweens had restarted, and um, Grant McLennan, the other singer-songwriter in the band, uh, he lived here, and Grant really wasn't going to move or shift, and so um, for the band to really exist, um, 
because the band existed from 1978 to 1989, and it always worked with Grant and I in close proximity, like just working. And I think that's the best. I think you can do, a, you know, like bands can do a certain amount on a distance, um, but really, um, well, for us anyway, just um, being in the same town really helps just with songwriting, but also just a, I don't know, just that thing that it's not some sort of long distance communication thing with the band. And so we moved back here because the go-betweens were existing again and Grant lived here. And so that is what brought me back. In terms of your, of your writing, um, do you find that you, you know, are you more efficient now? Do you think as a writer or do you think that you are, I don't know. I mean, the things that you always struggle with in the old days as a writer, do you still, or do you find that you are more economical now with, okay, that idea is not going to work. I'm not going to follow that. Um, how, what would you say to that? Oh, gee, that's, um, it, it looks to me like after I got through, you know, like, um, till I sort of started really writing stuff that I thought was consistently in my own voice and, um, like really me, which was in, like in the mid eighties, like it was when I was about 25, 26, I was writing constant, you know, consistently, you know, material that I liked and, um, that was, you know, before that I'd write, you know, like you'd write something that, you know, like I'd hit it, like I'd write songs that were really good. And then, then I'd write songs that, you know, musically as well, that were just sort of very quite different. But then there was a consistency started there. Um, some, you know, sometime around the third or fourth go between album. Um, but I, it feels like it's been the same process ever since. It really does. I, I write pretty much at the same rate. Um, I think I think over the last couple of years, um, I've written I'm a better editor at what I do and um I'm a little bit more focused. Um I'm really happy with the last three albums I've done and um so I think I've I've just become a you know, I have learnt things and 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 um as I said become probably a better editor of what I do. Um but overall since that process, I don't. The process hasn't changed, um, and without wishing to go into too much detail, is that the process is still the same. I'm not a home studio person. I I have not got um, mixing desks and keyboards and laptops, and it's all sort of wired together. And I'm working on loops, and I'm working on, you know. Um, little bits and pieces that just then weld into this sort of collage and it becomes a song. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing songs the, the way I've always written them, which is just, and which is a very, very traditional way, which is just acoustic guitar um, and just um, by myself and, and keeping and writing, you know, the lyrics in longhand and just, and just work, writing straight off the guitar the way, you know, um, any songwriter that you could mention back to about the 1920s works. You know, it's just memory. If something's good, I remember it. I'm working, writing songs like that. 
the idea of you working on loops just doesn't even make sense in my head. <laughs> I know. Well, I, sometimes I think that I should, you know, like I, I think that, uh, um, I, but I, I'm just not a, uh, I think that's a little bit to do with the fact that I'm not really uh, a technology person. You know, I'm not a machine person. Um, and that goes out into other parts of my life, you know, like it's just not with music. It also keeps the process kind of away from where you live. You know, you could you could write songs on a train. You could write them out in oh, the yeah. world, right? You, you don't want to have I, – I don't know if your resistance is also the idea that you don't want a studio in your house because you'll disappear in there for hours. Oh, God, that would be the worst thing in the world. Um, I know people do it. Lots of people do it. To me, it's like, uh, you know, when I record, I want to get out of the house, you know, you know um, and um, – I think that's that's really uh, important for me. You know, like it's what we were talking about before. Like, like recording it to me is very much about location. You know, like um, so. Although you can, you can argue, you know, how much did Ber recording Inferno in Berlin influence it? Well, probably not much because I had all the songs written, but but it was going there and doing it was a part of that record and. And and like I, going places to make records, I find very romantic. It's it's a little bit like filmmaking. It's you you going somewhere because you want something from um, the location. And um, and so the idea then of making a record in my house where I live all the time just like makes no sense to me. And the fact that you know I just don't want musicians. To, you know, like coming into my house and, you know, like I, I just don't, you know, like my house is where I live, you know, like I, I, and I, and I write the songs here. So if I actually then record them here, it'd get very claustrophobic and, and, um, no, that has never had any appeal to me to have a, to be recorded. Some reason for one album, if, if there was some magical mystic mystical reason that that worked then i'd do it but then i'd I, you know someone would have to come into my house with all the gear and set it all up and then take it away and i'd worry that you would you know from that day forward every time you heard that album you would hear your house yeah which i mean that which could be a good thing but um i've i've yeah no i'm i'm very much for uh location and the romance you know and um and especially i love recording studios too i mean i don't like being in there too long but you know i'll visit recording studios especially older ones you know like i love the rooms that there's something you know like just wonderful about them you know just going in there and the recording room where you go out you know play in the room play on the floor and then the room with the desk and all the equipment. You know, I find recording studios just lovely, you know, like just really nice places to be. As I say, I I budget, you know, just recording budgets keeps me there only for, you know, like a couple of weeks. And and after a while I start to, you know, going there every day starts to just get on my nerves a little bit. But um, I find them, you know, just wonderful, wonderful places to, to be, you know. Can you hear Berlin in in the Inferno album? Um, in a way, I mean, there, there was, you know, I mean, per se, probably not. Um, but, um, 
what what I get out of the record is is that um, I remember. I mean, the reason I went to Berlin to record was because Victor Van Viet, the engineer and producer, lives there and has a studio there. I mean, that's the flat out reason why I went there. But um, you know, just then you think, you know, like I I I have to get in like three underground trains. You know, it took me about forty minutes to get the studio from where I was staying. And just being in those trains, you know, around nine or ten o'clock in the morning, you know, like really, uh, you know, underground, and you know, you're really close to people, and you, and then, then there was the last bit was actually a button above line, above the ground line, um, you know, and you arrive at the studio after going through that, and you're really on, you know, like it's it's like that's something I can't get in Brisbane. That was a unique Berlin experience, um, you know, it'd be like being in New York and recording in Manhattan and coming through from Queens or something, you know, like it's, you just sort of, you know, you arrive and like you've done this, it put me in a certain mood, which I wouldn't have in Brisbane or, or Melbourne, you know, or Sydney. Um, so I, you know, like I know that, um, but the actual recording, um, a little bit, but, but probably not a lot. When you think about these songs, like when I, when I think about you, I think Robert Forster probably has, a vault of songs. Like I, I'm sure you have no, a lot of unrecorded songs. No. Is that true? No, 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 no. I, I don't. I, I, I'm not one of those songwriters that have 20 or 30 songs for every album. And then I carve off like nine or 10. I, I only write, there might be one or two more, um, that are like in the old days, you'd, you'd call, um, B side type things. Um, but no, no, I, I, this is what I was saying about my writing process before that goes back to the mid eighties, or this goes back to the early eighties, really. Um, I write one, two, or if I'm lucky, three songs a year. Um, that's, that's been my rate, no matter how much I change it or change things around or try and stimulate it in any way that I, I can think of. Um, that's the way it stays. So no, there's no big vault of songs, unfortunately. <laughs> there's not, no. Well, no. the reason why I brought that up is because I I thought to myself, well, there's nine songs on Inferno. It's such a compact, yeah. economical album, yeah. and it's so rich. Yeah. And I thought, well, these must have been the very specific, um, you know, compositions that represented this album. But it turns out these are the ones that you wrote. I mean, it's not like you had to make a big decision about leaving ten behind. No, no, and um, it's. I mean, I I do. There's probably a part of me that um, I only finish things that I think are really good. Mm. Um, I could finish half ideas and go, yeah, that's a song. You know, like there's lyrics, there's a melody. I could play you that on guitar. I mean, I could write ten songs in a week. You know, like but they'd be generic and lackluster and fairly lyrically. They'd probably be interesting. You know, like I, I can write lyrics. Um, quite quickly, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a words person, um, but the melodies would be very generic um, and um, uninspiring. Um, so um, I could write them, um, but I just, there has to be something that draws me back also that I just go, that melody is just not leaving my head. That That is really strong. I haven't heard that before or whatever. Um, that's what I'm searching for. Um, not something that oh yeah that's not bad that'll work that's okay I'm 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 not interested in that. 
when did you know that the collaboration with Yates was was definitely for this record? Like, how did that come about, and why that, that decision? Okay, um, in two thousand fifteen, um, I'd just written that melody for that song, and um, I someone in Dublin approached me. They were going to do a hundred and fiftieth anniversary of Yates's. Um, birth um, and they were, they were going to do it in Dublin they were, and, and, and it must have been some sort of arts council thing there and um, or all the venue or it was the Dublin Concert Hall and so they approached me and people from around the world like there was American people there and Europeans and um, they they went um, they approached me and said you know like they'd like me to come over and would I put one of Yeats's poems to music? And I'd just written this music, so it was a really good moment to contact me about this. And um, I'd written the music, and I was just wondering what type of lyric, the, and I was very happy with the music. And um, they just sent me a, a group of poems to choose from, and um, I chose Crazy Jane on the Day of Judgment. And it just worked. It just sat with the poem amazingly well i was very lucky because a lot of they said you know i could look at other stuff i wanted to have yates's but it's 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 really a lot of it's sort of late 19th century you know obviously early 20th century stuff and it, it doesn't really fit with rock and roll or any any um it might fit with opera or something i don't know but i was very lucky with this and um then i went over and i did one or two of other of my songs and and this show went on for two nights um and i was over there the musical director actually was an American um, person by the name of um, Thomas. Um, he's known as the Dove Man. Um, he he plays with a lot of people in New York, and uh, yeah, he's he's a very good piano player. Well, the song ended up being the lead-off track on on Inferno, which is so cool. Yeah, yeah. When when I when I wrote it and when I performed it over there in Dublin, I. I just immediately thought, oh, this is this has got to be on my next album. This was in 2015, and so it was always, you know, like in the, the list. And then um, I just love the recording. I just love the introduction. This sort of really steady rhythm, uh, melodic, atmospheric, um, not too slow, not too fast. It just sort of brought you into the record. In a really nice way, I thought. Did you ever hear the Mike Scott uh, from the Waterboys record? He did a lot of Yates. Uh... No, I, I I haven't, and I've seen since that Van Morrison did a Yates song as well. Um, no, I haven't heard the. Is it good? Have you heard it? Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I like it a lot. All right. Okay. I like it. Okay. I just okay. I like the fact that Yates is on an album on about Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, you know, like it, it's just sort of. I just love the the marriage between the lyric and the the uh, the melody. I was just so happy with it that I just wanted to record it. You know, I, I got into your music around '86 when I was a high school DJ, uh, and I'm I'm, right. I'm 48 now. So I, I really I really spent a lot of time in my life listening to you and your compositions. And uh, all right, looking back, Robert, I mean. It's amazing to me how even a song like Spring Rain, it's there's a an elegance um, 
even on the scruffier numbers, there there's an elegance. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I've always been so impressed with the fact that your aesthetic has always seemed so clear to you, um, or at least it yeah. sounds that way to me. Um, yeah, right. How do you regard the older work? I'm, for the most part, I'm very happy with it. Um, I think that's a very good observation. Um, um, it, it, it sometimes, uh, I do think about, you know, like changing, trying to change the aesthetic. It, it's, it's, I'm worried about, you know, you're always questioning it, it. You know, is this true vision? Or is this a rut that I mean? And it can be a very <laughs> fine line there. Um, but I, I, I have stayed. It's part of this is what I'm saying to you before about the writing off the acoustic guitar. Um, but I still find new things. I still I still write songs I'm really excited about. And um, so the actual process remains the same. And um, it's just to me it, it it still goes back to really the when Grant and I started the go betweens. Um the sort of influences I, I had there they varied um through the years where I've gone into various things, but maybe even on this record, you know, like there's things that um I I hear Probably this record, you know, like more than, more than um, anything I've done for a long time, goes, and I don't know why, um, goes back to certain, you know, things that um, reminds me a little of of what I was doing in the late seventies and the eighties. Mm. Um, um, it's a little bit more um, pop. It's a little bit more melodic. It's a little bit more electric. Um, yeah, um, it's those 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 sort of things. There's less folky stuff on it. There's it's it's, it's a little bit more. I can only say again, like well, although you know, pop orientated, perhaps. Do you think that you are attracted to the same themes um, that you've always been attracted to? Because I've noticed that for myself as a writer, I'm still working on the same things I was working on for the last thirty years, and. And I'm I'm getting a better perspective of them, but I'm I'm not really departing much. I was kind of laughing about you saying it was a rut. Like I, if it's a rut, I've been in it for thirty years too. Uh, <laughs> I don't no, know. I don't think it. I don't think it is. And I, and I think that uh, I think new things come in, and and I always welcome them, um, like new influences or new chords, or um, and you know suddenly I'm writing on a different part of the guitar or whatever. Um, and, um, but I, I think, um, that the lyrically and and, and whatever, you know, I've always sort of dealt with things that are basically fairly, um, like, um, everyday things that are close to me, things, things that, and, and, um, that are very much in my world, um, and basically, you know, like as I've got older, obviously what, what happens is there's a natural changing because you're getting older and suddenly, you know, new things come into your life as you get older. So these, these new themes come in because they come into your life. Um, and I, I'm not someone who's 
like you know um you know writing you know these huge character pieces or um things that are like fantasy or whatever um I've never really been into so um you know as my life changes my world changes and and so you know like that's the way that it's been but I so there's been a consistency as well you know because it that's 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 what I do um yeah are you hard on yourself you know I mean because you have to wear the hat of artist and then critic of the art that you just created um just you know to decide if it's editorially something that you want are you somebody who is hard on yourself that way do you hold yourself to a certain standard and how do you get the criticism that you need from yourself uh i think i am i think i'm that's one thing uh i think i am is a good editor of of my own material some sometimes i've left songs of, of an album like or I put something on, I go, ah, oh, that was a mistake. You know, like, I, you know, like that was, um, and, but I haven't done that for a while. Um, but, well, I feel anyway. Um, but I think that's something that I'm, I'm fairly good at. Um, I can see it in other people. Um, I used to do it with Grant a bit, you know, like I'd, I'd sort of go, you know, like I'd, you know, they, that's your strongest song, you know, like I try and, because he's someone who'd have 30 songs. And so, you know, like it was always with him, like, you know, bring songs down to five for the go-between. So I always thought I had a fairly good eye. Not not that that necessarily changed things much, but on what, what he was doing. Um, you know, like I, I think that's something that I'm I'm fairly good at. Yeah. Um, and, and I think... I am hard on myself. I push myself, um, and I'm not lazy. Um, and um, but I think that's just what you have to do. I, I think that's what I signed up with when when I um, when I you know when I've, I've kept on going. Um, you know, like to just do it. You know, to have written songs for 40 years, you have to have a self-discipline and a drive, which I, I definitely have. How are you with external input? You know, when you, when you are writing songs and you're recording them and saying, here's the rough, the rough mix of it. And you play it for someone that you trust. Are you good with, with, you know, hearing their notes or it doesn't matter? Um, no, no, I, I really, um, like it, really a, a song that I know is good enough is when I want to play it to other people. Like, ah. um, like my wife or, or whatever, you know, like, you know, like if I want to play something to her um, and she's been playing on my last two albums, but this has really been all the way through our relationship. Um, she's someone who's got a very good understanding of what I do and has got a great musical ear. And, and you know, if I just want to play her something, then I know it must be good. Um, and, um, but I'm not someone like in the practice room or when we're preparing for an album, I, I let other people write their parts. I'm not someone who goes over and, I, you know, like and goes to the bass player. I want you to play exactly that and <laughs> and the guitar player exactly that. I, I sort of feel like I've written it. Um, I've done all the words. I've done all the music. I've arranged it. It's complete. I think that's enough of me already in the song. You know, like I, I feel like I... 
that's as much control over it as I want to give it and then other musicians come in. Obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, saying, oh, no, that doesn't work. Or, you know, like, I think, no, you know, like, no, try that. But but really, I, um, I let people go at it. Um, and as I said, if I can place I've, my songs to them as well, then then I know that you know, like I, the song is, is probably good. I found that as an adult, I have a really a reservoir of discipline I didn't know that I had. I think as a teenager and in my twenties, I think I was flaky and undisciplined. Were you yeah. always? Did you always have that discipline as a young man? Not really. Not not the personal discipline. Um, I was you know like. Uh, wilder and and more impulse not impulsive i was wilder and just and just you know um you know just carrying on you know like with alcohol drugs whatever um in my 20s early 30s um but um the actual songwriting i was always disciplined with ambition i always had uh it was just more my personal side of my life was more uh, unpredictable and wilder. And, uh, yeah, like that. Were you somebody who was always practicing when, when you were a kid? Were you sort of always on the guitar, always playing, always writing? No, I sort of started late because I didn't come from a musical family. And so I only started playing guitar when I was about 15 or 16. And um, I, I must have been fairly dedicated to the guitar, um, and and I was sort of you know like it's it's like there's there's two types of of people that play the guitar really um, uh, you know pick it up as teenagers there, there's people that want to become um, like virtuosos and and there's people that start to play and then realize that they're becoming singer-songwriters. And singer-songwriters fairly soon stop all the stuff that, um, like scales and just endless riffing and, and all of that, because they, they want to write songs and you really you can't do both. Um, and so you become a fairly good rhythm guitar player and, a, um, and, and you can write licks, but, but that's what you... Uh, you know, um, you know, you look at people, it's, you see it, there's people like Lou Reed and um, John Fogarty and John Lennon all fit into this thing, you know, like that's what they are, really good sort of rhythm guitar players, can play lead, but um, they're not virtuosos. Um, and, and so the, the same was in a way, you know, I'm not wishing to put myself in, and with them, but, but that's, that's the way it happened with, with me. And I, I think I got hooked on songwriting. I think that's when you really start to, you write one or two good, I wrote a couple of good songs when I was 20, so I'd been playing guitar for about four or five years, and I was playing in a band for a little while, but you know, just doing cover material. And then I started to write songs, you know, like I was 19, 20. And that's when it really kicked in. You know, like, it was like, that's when I'd spend hours every day um, not learning scales, not learning, um, you know, I've got to play Layla or, you know, I, I've got to, you know, be able to play, you know, I've got to, I'm, you know, I've got to do, try and work out what Hendrix was doing on that, you know, like, 
It was never that. It, it, it was just becoming a fairly good rhythm guitar player. But I didn't really know I was going to become a songwriter. And then I just did. And then I got really hooked on songwriting, not guitar, not becoming a better guitar player. Just in a white shirt with my hair combed straight. Here in my black shoes and me without a day. about we read in the Velvet Underground was it sort of the subtlety of what they were doing um, that appealed to you? Uh, it was a number of things. Um, it was, you know, I, I think what what really hit me was just how primitive it was, and that appealed to me. Um, you know, like everyone in the '60s, in the mid '60s, when they were working, and from then on, really, um, was involved with em embellishment and, and overdubs and 
um, you know, in the studio, building, building, building layers, 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 layers. Um, where the Velvets, um, you know, especially on the really the first three albums, um, and I love the fourth, I love Loaded, um, but the first three, it's more, it's it's incredibly stripped, stripped, stripped back compared to what other people are doing. So it's a lot more song orientated, and it's a lot more. Um, we're playing three chords, and that's all we're doing, and and we're not got loads of overdubs, and orchestras or whatever, or fifteen guitar parts to try and mask the simplicity of it, and and that's what I that's what I liked. You know, the Velvets are really when you listen to that first album, are really like a fifties band. You know, they're, you know, like. They could have done that in you know Sun Studios. You know Sam Phillips could have produced that. You know it's 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 quite um, you know and that that's what hit me first. Um, the that they sounded like a garage band with great songs. You know and and that's really what hit me. I, I didn't know when I first listened to the first album, which I got when I was about eighteen um, or nineteen, maybe eighteen. I didn't know that John Cale had done all that stuff with John Cage. I, I, I didn't know that Lou Reed had been playing since the late 50s. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't know that. It just sounded to me like a garage band that had been playing, everyone had been playing in the band for one or two years, and they just had these incredible songs. And so, and that's what, that's really influenced me with the start of the Go Twins. I thought, well, if I could do that, you know, had that primitive thing, but with great songs, that'd be interesting thing to try. It was like a misunderstanding of the band. But then, <laughs> once once I got to know the band, and because there wasn't much written about the Velvets in the mid seventies, especially for a boy in Brisbane, that you could really find out a lot of things, you know. And um, but um, yeah, I guess it was, it's just, I guess it comes back to you know that Lou Reed thing of him just being happy to sit on a couple of naked chords and just do his thing and the bass was fairly simple, the drums were fairly simple there was not lead guitar you know, he's a great believer there's a lot of strumming on Velvet Underground he's a big believer in just sort of keeping it um, you know, three chords just sort of, and just getting a new melody over that um, yeah, that, that's what it was very influential on me, you know and uh that's what I heard. You're right, because like we're going to have a real good time together. That song just sounds like a 50s, you're right, like a total 50s rock and roll song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for my man, you know. Yeah. Um, it's all, there's a lot of like Chuck Berry or um, the, the, the thing that, that they did was, was, um, and there's a quote from John Cale, which, which is very interesting because he, he said, um, the thing with with the Velvets was we weren't into the blues, and and that's really a key because you know like the Stones, the Beatles, Dylan, you know everyone has a blues base. You know a lot of that '60s stuff, and and the Velvets weren't, but they keep the three chord thing. They keep the three or four chord thing, but they then don't um, do blues changes, and um, that's that's really the only difference. And um, that's why it can go back. It can jump back into the fifties because it's got that three or four chord, you know, flat rhythm thing. Um, and 
but the one difference is it's not blues based. But they they remind me of Hemingway in the sense that the simplicity is deceptive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very much so. And and they they um, this this is this, this is where see this is where I think more John Cale comes in um, in into the band because I think I think he at the start there he roots Lou down onto. You know, like I can do the viola, and we can actually make an advantage of this. Um, you know, maybe Lou Reed, left to his own devices, would have gone a little bit more. You know, had more flourishy. Um, um, but but um, I think that's Kale. I think you know, like that's him more. Just like we we can we can do this sort of atonal sort of one note um staying on you know like staying on on chords and not moving um that that was his influence maybe yeah i think you're right because he, he he seemed far more out there musically that, than reed even though reed was out there yeah 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 definitely definitely um and, and that's why i think they're a really good combination because because you know like lou's obviously writing the songs um and he he was very lucky to to have John Cale as I mean there's also Sterling Morrison who who can't be overlooked who's who's incredible um, I love his guitar playing but he's very he's very just c- compared to other guitar players at the time he's very disciplined and minimal as well you know like um, his stuff I mean there, there, there's another guitarist who I really like. Um, uh, from from the sixties, like someone like Robbie Krieger from The Doors, yeah, um, who sort of plays in a vaguely similar way, but you know, like Krieger's like you know, like there's licks going everywhere, and it's it's very very sort of sixties in a way. But I like his playing, where and where you listen to Sterling Morrison, it's almost like he sounds like he's doing nothing compared to say, even someone who's disciplined, like Robbie Krieger. Besides, you know, before you get to someone else who's just like completely way out there, you know. Um, but, but he sort of, he fits in really well with, um, with Kyle and, and Lou Reed too, you know, you know, I, I was in a cafe in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago and they were playing first Velvet album and then they played, uh, the Modern Lovers record. And I thought both those albums sound totally out of time, but they're almost hard yeah. to place. Again, I think it's simplicity. I think it's, it's, um, Again, so I think it's the love of fifties rock and roll, but 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 played through like, say the Velvets, oh and, and no, but more than one lovers like late sixties, early seventies equipment. Do you know what I mean the equipment developed? Right. And so, and so they're they're playing the, the the drum kits are bigger than fifties drum kits. The Jerry Harrison's guitar um, um, keyboard sound is different to anything you get in the fifties, um, and. Um, and and so it's got a power to it um, that that you can't a bigness to it that, that you can't necessarily get on on fifties recordings. But um, you know, it's you, you can forget just how complicated music got in the seven in the early seventies, late sixties. Um, and and I think that um, this is what uh, and even you know like loaded is is. You know the the fourth 
Velvet's album is, you know, it's obviously the, the poppiest record, but it's pretty clean and sharp and uh, basic as well. It's just it's just recorded in a, a bigger studio, really, um, and it's sonically a lot more, you know, uh, traditional and big and clean. But it's, you know, as I said, it's fully stripped back as well. And uh, I think that's what cuts through. And I think the other thing is the singing. I think both Jonathan Richmond and Lou Reed aren't traditional rock and roll voices. Right. Um, and and I think that, um, you know, you compare them to, to people like like anyone, like, like Bowie or John Fogarty or Jim Morrison. You know, the, everyone, you know, the, the tradition was to have that big booming voice and both the and both John Richmond and Lou Reed are, you know like, like they're, they're more you know it's more a, a conversational talking it's an odder voice it's 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 not a traditional rock voice that 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 both both that that they've got I know when you think about you know the, the later days of if you think like Queen or U2 those are bands that were powered right. by like technicians those are like a very very technical yeah. bands yeah, um, yeah, and can... bo- and both of them, both of them, with Freddie Mercury and and, and Bono, like massive voices. Yeah, you know, big, 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 big voices. Yeah. I wonder what it was like for you to say, okay, I've got two great songs, and then you go talk to Grant. And he has thirty. Did that? Yeah, <laughs> that must have been kind of annoying. <laughs> I, it 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 was it was. Um, I got used to it. I mean, that was just. <laughs> It, it put me under a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for many, for many years, um, and um, but that was that was his strength, you know. Like that was that was his. Uh, he was just very, very, you know, melodic, very melody. Just you know, which just came out of him. Um, that was his strength. That was that's what he did. Um, and um it you know it really worked for him and so yeah and so he he and also he he was sort of sort of person that would finish your song um even though um um it might be a great song he he was more that sort of person that was like um oh i can finish this melodically I can wrap it all up then i'll i'll actually write the song Do you know what i mean he he was more <laughs> like that yeah, I would imagine that, that you know, I, I don't know if you're a competitive guy, but I would imagine that even the least competitive person would, would start to go, geez, i got to step it up here. I know. Well, see, but that, that's that's what was good. You know, like that's a a good thing um, in terms of, you know, like the, 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 the quality of the records. You know, like that's that's what helps, you know, like to make the records that we worked on, um, you know, um, so good is is this is this combination um but there there were times also when i was um when i i i did have more more material when it wasn't just you know like i've got two and he's got 30 i mean occasionally it would be like that but but it wasn't like that all the time thank god <laughs> yeah that that would that would start to get uh a little vexing. yeah yeah it wasn't like that every album okay no. yeah um do you feel, uh, you know, there's a sort of curatorial uh, responsibility for the go-between's legacy, or do you think it's it's doing fine on its own, or do you feel you're very protective of it and you have to kind of be the guy who keeps the 
the flame guarded? Um, a little bit of both. Um, like I'm working with um, um, like Domino Records. We're, we're doing a uh, um, a box set series, um, and so that that is pure tutorial work, um, putting that together. Um, but you know that's the good thing about records. Also, there's part of it that they just go. You know, like they're out there, they move around. People hear them. People come in contact with them. Um, you know, music. You know, it just sort of flows in and out of rooms and just you know, like um, moves through time and space, and you, you have no control over that. Um, so it's it's a bit of both. I was talking to uh, Marty Wilson Piper a couple weeks ago, and he, all right, you know, and really just a, a lovely guy. And he, Where does he live? Where does he, he live? You know, I think at the time he was in Germany, but he might have just been touring there. I think I feel like he's in all Australia, right. um, but I don't know that. But okay, I was asking him. I said, "How do you continue to challenge yourself artistically? You know, as you get older." And this is we. He was yeah. laughing. He said, "Ask Scott Walker," because this is before. Scott Walker had died, um, which yeah. was you know awful. But, but he, I like what he was saying in terms of like it's a tricky thing. Do you feel, yeah. you know, how do how do you challenge yourself artistically, or do you even think in those terms? I I don't think too much about it. I I think what what happened with with me is that I was very lucky. Is that is that I started this other thing with 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 writing. Um, in 2005, I started to work. I was approached to, to work as a, um, a a music journalist, and so I wrote music journalism for eight years. And then I wrote a book called Grant and I, and I'm writing now on something else. And I think that was a really good thing for me because it meant that songwriting wasn't the only thing in my life, and music wasn't the only thing in my life. That I was doing another activity. Um, and not that that particularly challenged me, but, but it just sort of, um, almost had to split my brain in a way. And, and, and I, I just got this whole other thing into my life. And I found that, um, that was obviously challenging, um, to suddenly be writing and having it published. Um, and, um, but, but in general, I just sort of, you know, listen to music and I, I read I read and um, I try and keep new ideas coming into my life the way that I always have. You know, um, I'm probably reading more now than I did in the past. I think, well, that's good because that's a, a new set of influences coming in on my, my work. Because I, I, I'm a big believer that, that the, the, as a musician, the only, you've got to have more influences than just music. You know, like... You can't restrict yourself as a musician to just having musical, you know, like uh, um, musical influences. So I try and it's just my natural way anyway. But I, I am interested in, you know, books or film. Or it can be TV. It can be magazines. It can be anything that uh, I know that if I like it and consume it, it must have some effect on my music. I should tell you that the the ten rules of rock and roll to me is is one of those indispensable. You, everyone should read it. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I thank love you. it. I love it. Um, I also wanted to ask you um, 
closing the album with One Bird in the Sky seemed like just the perfect closer. Was that an obvious Uh, closer to you? No, it wasn't. Not at all. You know, like, um, um, it it was really, I played the album to one or two other people heard it, and it totally took me by surprise that they picked out that track as... It, you know, like both these other people just went, oh, it's my favorite song. And I was like, I was completely blindsided. And um, and I thought, um, no, that that was something that came in right towards the end. And as soon as it was the last song, it made perfect sense. And I quite like it. You know, like I'm really very, very happy with it. But it was like, it's the one song, like there are other songs on other albums, going all the way through Go Between Records, that start with an acoustic guitar and um, normally they're, you know, like they're, they're, they're in the records, you know, they might be the fourth song or a place to a certain point to break up the electric numbers or just have it in contrast to the electric numbers. Um, with this one, and I think it really works well, is, is the first time a song starts with just acoustic guitar is last. And at that really, that turnaround, and it hadn't occurred to me, really works. And and then you, you say you've got almost like band things all the way and quite electric at times. And then suddenly the acoustic guitar comes in on the last song. You know, it's the first time that happens on an album. And um, I really like the way that that happens. It hadn't occurred to me, and it was just something that came quite late. And now that you hear it contextually, do you see that, in your mind, that is that is the only song that could really end that record. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that we we were really having um, the other the other song I had been thinking of in the past that could have ended was "Life Has Turned a Page," um, and I thought that would have been a good ending song as well, um, especially and also it's got that fade, and I thought, oh, that'd be a good way for the album to go out, but. Um, this worked better. This worked better. Yeah, it's a beautiful number. Thank you. Thank you very much. I love it. I, I wanted to ask you just to close with, I. someone asked me the other day, said, what's one of the saddest things you can think of? And I said, one of the saddest things I can think of is no longer loving a song that you used to love. And, right. <laughs> and they said, they did not expect that answer. It was a weird answer. But I guess I'm yeah. asking you, and this is a hard one, is what do you yeah. think happens? Do we grow out of a song? Because some stuff, like we're talking about the Velvets or Modern Lovers, I love them maybe yeah. more than ever. Um, yeah, yeah. But what happens? Like, you know, I, I remember loving that petrol emotion when I was 17, and I just don't yeah. anymore. What do you yeah. think it chemically <laughs> or sonically goes on where we no longer get lit up by this? It's not the song's fault. It's Is it us? What is that? Um, I... I... That doesn't happen to me too much. You know, there's songs where you you obviously you know you listen to an album so much that you can't, you know, like that that you know like all the ju- you've got a lot of the juice out of it, and and you can still go back and uh, like really love it, but you know like it depends, you know, like not it doesn't become something that you can't stand or you know like it it, it loses that glaze that that you're talking about. Um, I can't think about that. That doesn't really happen to me all that much. I can't think of um, 
all that much that I've listened to that I've completely changed my mind and gone, oh my God, how did I like that so much? Um, not, not a lot, but I can imagine, you know, like around the, the age of 17 or 18, you know, like, but you know, like that, like like a band like that, Petrol Emotion that you're talking about there would still be in the, 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 the field of what you like, you know, do you know what I mean? It's not like, right. Oh, I really, I used to have this huge thing for like rush or do you know what I mean? Or, uh, you know, some hideous band, um, <laughs> you know, like super tramp or something where you go, you know, how could I even begin to have liked that? Well, I mean that, do you know what I mean? Like that petrol emotion is, is, is in the ballpark, you right. know, like, so, um, so, but I, so I, I can't really think of, something where I've gone down and, and done a sort of super tramp thing. Um, but, um, um, no, I, I, I think that's a very good line though. You know, like what's the saddest thing, you know, like falling out of love or whatever with a song that I used to love. I think that's a, a very true and a very good, um, thing to have said, but I can't think of a, an example I mean, for myself. Well, maybe something like, you know, even something like, uh, even though I still love the clash as much as I always yeah. have, they, they don't fire me up yeah. the way they did maybe when I was 18, yeah, yeah, okay. you know, um, even though I still love them deeply. Yeah. 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 You know? Um, um yeah, the, there would be, nothing comes to mind, but I, I think, um, that, you know, I mean, there's things like, yeah, I mean, some, something like, you know, like say the first Strokes album. You know, I I really like that, and and I I um, but I can't imagine going back to that. You know, but then I right. like I, I I I I hear a song here and there, and I think I can see all the reasons why I like them. You know, like I, I can see why that's that was very appealing at the time, and I thought they were uh, a good band, and 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 that was a really good record. Um, but you know, like I, I would not put that record on now. Do you know what I mean? I, I um, but there, there's quite a few records like that, really. Um, but no, I, I know what you, I, I know what you mean. I, I can't really think of anyone off the top of my head. It's like that. it's sort of like when a like when a song loses its mystery. It's kind of like not being sexually attracted to someone that you used to be sexually attracted yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I know precisely what what you mean. Um, but I can't really think of of any any examples. Well, I um, I know I always wonder about that. I always think, where did the magic go? But I always feel it has more to do with me probably growing yeah, well, away definitely. from it, right? I, um, I th I think so. I think so. And, and you know, you can't. Um, I'll I'll give you I, I'll give you an example. Like outside of a, like a literary example was the poetry of Sylvia Plath, mm. which I really liked in my twenties, um, and when I was like thirty, and I read it now, and I just go, I like it. But I, it was something that really touched me in my 20s which was around the age that or late 20s or, or whatever around the, the age that she was writing do you know what i mean it, yeah. it's sort of um and i read it now and I, I i can see all its power and i really like it 
but I think it's just a little bit, um, I know this is going to, you know, like a little bit overcooked. It's a little bit always trying for fireworks, always, always, you know, I'm older and it's, and I can just see that it's a young person's or a younger person's, you know, they're going for everything. And, and now it just sort of feels a, a little bit overdone. Um, and I don't get the same enjoyment out of it that I used to. Well, but I can still like it, and I can still see all of its power and everything. But that's something that that I've actually felt. You know, like I, I picked up a pottery, and I, you know, again, and and seen all the things I used to like when I was around her age. You know, like I think she died at thirty or thirty-three. Right. I th- yeah. Very so, young. Yeah. So around that time, um, I can I can see. Um, I liked it, but I can sort of see why it doesn't grab me as much as it did now, you know. And I'm trying to think of a... There must be, you know, like musical um, uh, equivalents of that. But, you know... um, But then, you know, like if... You know, if I listen to the first Velvet's album or the first Modern Lovers album, which I've listened to a million times, both of them, um, I still still think... um, I I wouldn't I'd really love it still and and I wouldn't think oh you know um, I don't know I think my appreciation of it would would be different I I think I'd still have a stronger feeling for it than I than I would for that Sylvia Plath thing in that particular time but then again but then again if she had kept on if she'd have lived and kept on writing maybe you know there might have been things that she wrote when she was forty fifty or sixty that um, her you know, her style might have changed and would fit in a little bit more with, you know, I, I might enjoy more now. I, you know, you can't tell. I feel that way about Kerouac. I, I think that I, I don't, I feel exactly the way about that you do about Plath. I, I feel about Kerouac. Yep, um, yep. No, I can totally understand that. And I think that that would be, um, that I can totally, I can totally fully believe that. And uh, I wish I could think of a musical equivalent, but I can't. I was thinking, um, like, like for me, the, like I love the Ramones, but I don't really listen to them. But I still love the Saints, so I still feel the same stuff yeah. I felt for the Saints. It's a, it's yeah, a mystery, yeah. you know. It's one of those mystery, mythical things you can't put your finger on. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's, it's the same. I, I can remember loving the first run of you know those Sex Pistols singles. Yeah, and which I've I've listened to, and but you know they'd still be good. They'd they'd still be. Um, the the luster of them would not have gone, although I've listened to them for years and years and years and years and years. Um, I still know that they would be really good. I think uh, I think I grew out of Adam and the Ants. That was the one I was thinking. Of. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, that's yeah. No, I can understand that. I can understand that. Robert, I, I really appreciate your time. I've wanted to talk to you for a really long time, and it's a, a real ah. treat to, to be able to do that. Well, thank-, thank you. Thank you for the questions. Beautiful, wonderful questions, and, uh, and lovely speaking. Hey, thank you for your time. Congratulations. I love the record. Oh, thank you. Thanks, thank you Tom. very, very much. I don't know why I mentioned that petrol emotion, but, uh, you know, I reached for something. There they were, so I grabbed them. What can you do? Uh, RobertForster.net will give you all the information you need to know about Robert Forster. 
new album, new tour, new news. It's all there. My own website, alexgreenonline.com, or just follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor, or follow me on Instagram, Ember's Podcast, or just email me, for God's sakes, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Now, Stereo Embers, the podcast, can be found at any place that you get podcasts. You know, places like Spotify, Google Play, Last.fm, Stitcher, and iTunes. So, go where you go, do what you do, and when you get there, please subscribe to our show and maybe leave a nice comment, a couple of stars. You know how it works. That's the way the world is now. It's Yelp Nation, and it all counts. Thank you, as always, for your support of our show. We really appreciate it. It means a lot. Now, let's close things off with a new one from Robert Forrester. This is No Fame. Enjoy it, and I will see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. My mother hangs the washing and my father has jobs to ignore. The weekend that has come is the same as the weekend before. And if I bust out and the highway is really the key. Everyone can follow, everyone can overtake me get off the phone And if I bust out and the highway is really the key Everyone can follow Everyone can overcome